There are numerous large randomized control trials showing that in the short, intermediate, and long term, over the course of uh, a couple of years in several studies, uh, that there is almost no difference in weight loss between very low carb, moderately low carb, very low fat, and, and, and moderately low fat uh, dietary intakes. Welcome to the Metagenics Clinical Podcast where natural healthcare practitioners can hear innovative, cutting-edge information from leading experts from around the world. Welcome to Metagenics Clinical Podcast. I'm Nathan Rose, and with me today is Dr. Scott Kahan. Dr. Kahan is a physician trained in both clinical medicine and public health. He specialised in weight management and obesity medicine, and he's the director of the National Centre for Weight Loss and Wellness. Welcome, Scott. Thank you. Happy to be here. So you've been looking at obesity for a long time and you've got this, I first like the um, slogan of your weight loss center, it's where science meets humanity. And that's what we're really going to explore today, that the science behind obesity and perhaps how we may have not been looking at the, the humanity side in a sense when it comes to managing patients with obesity. Uh, so perhaps just give us a bit of a background on uh your background in the sense of your interest in obesity and where you got to today in terms of uh how your clinic operates yeah so uh going back quite a while uh i've struggled with my weight uh ever since i was a little kid and so it's been of personal interest to me uh in my uh later teen years uh, i got very interested in trying to lose weight and going to the gym and exercising and such. And from there, I got very interested in nutrition and, uh, and some of the science behind weight management. And I studied that in college uh, and to some degree in medical school. And I was really trying to find a career in which I could practice a type of medicine uh, focused in these areas. Initially, it was uh, something that I, I couldn't quite figure out short of uh, leaving medicine and becoming a, a dietitian or the like. Um, and ultimately, I went uh, after medical school and after residency, uh, I went down a path of becoming a public health researcher uh, and got another degree and started doing research in, uh, in public health nutrition and uh, preventive nutrition, uh, like to prevent heart attacks and so forth. And we started getting a lot of uh, grant funding and a lot of interest in uh, issues around obesity. And so uh, I got initially involved in obesity formally as a researcher uh, and then had the opportunity to uh, go back to my clinical roots uh, and ultimately started working in the clinical obesity center in my university. And one thing led to another and eventually uh, I ended up doing this full time, uh, which is to say I spend uh, a good portion of my week seeing patients in a very nice, uh, fairly large multidisciplinary weight management uh, center in Washington, D.C. Uh, and then I continue to do research and policy work, uh, all involved in, uh, in obesity uh, on a population level. Um, and I get to do some fun teaching and some travel and such. So it's a, it's a, a, a real uh, enjoyable career. And part of why it's so enjoyable is that I get to work with a lot of really great people, uh, many patients and many collaborators uh, and researchers that I work with. Uh, and so it's, uh, it, it, it's really uh, uh, very much a privilege to be able to do what I do. Absolutely. It sounds like you wear many hats from societal to bench top to, to bedside. So I think you're in a great position today to help us work our way through uh, the science of obesity and, and weight loss and some of the uh, strategies, perhaps best practice we need to consider for, for helping these patients. So first I want to uh, talk about some of the, the causes of obesity, weight gain, and um, some of the strategies for weight loss. And we were just speaking off air um, prior about uh, one of the concepts we've found when discussing obesity in, say, functional medicine, which we've trained up to be, in a sense, systems oriented, where searching for often maybe occult drivers, say a patient with fatigue might have, and that fatigue, you know, there could be a hundred causes of fatigue. It could be iron deficiency, anemia, hypothyroidism, etc. And that um, really good way of thinking 
for um, some of these chronic diseases is often applied to obesity, which is also obviously a chronic disease. But um, we have discovered perhaps that maybe we're becoming too much of a what we're discussing is a biological detective rather than a, a sort of a, a health coach. So let's first look at this. Um, first of all, let's have a look at the, the cause of obesity. What's the sort of general consensus amongst uh, researchers about some of the, the key drivers of obesity? At the most basic level, um, obesity is caused by a genetic environmental mismatch. So our genetics evolved to thrive in environments with quite little food availability, a lot of difficulty getting food. When you get food, uh, it tends to be food that takes a lot of energy just to, even just to chew, let alone to uh, break it down in our guts and absorb it and metabolize it. Uh, and so uh, not a whole lot of energy availability uh, in those foods. And now all in, a, in an evolutionary blink of the eye, uh, with pretty much the same genetics, we're now in a very, very different environment. So today, food is everywhere. In general, the unhealthiest and highest calorie and most fattening foods tend to be the cheapest foods and also the largest portion foods and also the most heavily marketed foods and the most available foods. And they're also engineered typically to be the tastiest foods. Mm. And so despite our genetic proclivities, um, we're in this environmental setting that leads to us eating much more of those foods uh, and having a, a, a huge difficulty in dealing with all of that uh, deluge of intake of energy. And then similarly, on the physical activity end, there is a similar mismatch where we are genetically evolved to be extremely active. We have to be active uh, evolutionarily to run away from predators and to chase after prey and to forage uh, for our foods uh, and uh, in, again, in a sort of evolutionary blink of the eye, now you don't really have to be active in your day-to-day -day for most of us. And in many cases, we really can't be very active in our days, even if we try. You figure you got to sleep for, for seven, eight hours. Uh, you're going to be in the car going to going to and from work another hour or two a day. Uh, most people will sit in front of uh, computers or at desks doing desk jobs for another eight hours a day. Uh, you're you know, eating meals another, throw another hour in there or whatever. There's not much mm -hmm. time left uh, to realistically be very active at best. If you're really motivated and your day is going the way you want it to and everything is playing out well, you can go to the gym for 45 minutes or go for a walk for a bit. Uh, but even, even that often, for many reasons, uh, gets uh, uh, things get in the way of that. Um, so, uh, so, you know, this, this mismatch of our current environment with our longstanding genetics sets the stage uh, for this weight gain and uh, uh, inexorable increase in obesity rates and extreme difficulty uh, for most of us to be able to take off that weight and keep it off. I think you described most people's um, lives there. <laughs> I could tick a lot of those boxes about the, the commute and work and travel and children and everything. Um, but, yeah, I suppose fundamentally and maybe sometimes this is not what we want to hear um, and maybe it's been, you know, uh, I don't know, too uh, simplified the fact that it is comes down to like an energy in versus energy out on a, on a basic level. Do you agree? Uh, so there's, there's no consistent research showing that energy in and energy out is, um, is not relevant here. Um, now, I think we do have to uh, m a little bit more clearly define what we mean by that. Mm. On the one hand, uh, energy out is not just exercise, but also uh, the energy that we burn at rest and the energy that we burn from our heart speeds, our food and such. Um, and so there are there, you know, the the energy of our metabolism is a bit of a black box still to our our 
our scientific understanding. Um, but when you take into account the energy in the form of food and calorie intake that we eat, combined with activity, combined with the different aspects of metabolism, uh, in, in the best studies that we have, uh, that shows that that explains uh, people's uh, uh, weight changes and, and weight regulation. Now, another thing that I think is very important, and this may get to what we'll talk about uh, uh, a little bit down the line during this uh, podcast, but the other thing that, that you need to be careful about is then making the conclusion that heavy people just need to eat less and exercise more. And as providers, we just need to be really stern with them about being more aggressive and more motivated to just eat less and exercise more. Uh, whereas at the most basic level of that uh, of that equation of energy in and energy out seems pretty simple. Uh, there are many dozens, if not hundreds of factors that play into each end of that equation. And it is those things that give us uh, the potential for lots of clinical leverage. So for example, and this is just you know one of the more basic examples I can give you, um, uh, on the one hand, you could tell someone to just exercise more because they need to burn calories and, uh, uh, and, and exercise is good for them. On the other hand, uh, we need to take into account, like I mentioned before, uh, if someone is, uh, has a, a desk job uh, and three hours of commute and, uh, uh, and lots of child caring responsibilities, there may be very little time in the day uh, to uh, add uh, uh, physical activity. And, and then the clinical approach may be some problem solving around how to fit in some, uh, some small bits of physical activity here and there. Or uh, the next person uh, does, hasn't been doing much physical activity, and it turns out that they have a knee injury that happened a year ago that's still bothering them and they're unable to get back to the exercise that they enjoy doing, uh, and so they're not doing anything. And there's a number of uh, clinical strategies there where we could either help them to, uh, you know, re-engage in, in some physical therapy, physiotherapy that may, uh, uh, that may uh, help them get back on their feet, uh, or we may consider problem solving around some other activities that they may not have thought of uh, that don't uh, bother their knee, uh, but allow them to be active, uh, and so on and so on and so on. There's many dimensions of this, uh, but uh, uh, you know, not to go on too much of a tangent, but uh, mm -hmm. calories in, calories out matters, and at the same time, we need to think about it in, in, a, uh, in as patient-centered a way as possible. Beautiful. All right, I just want to, sorry to label this point a bit, um... Let's have a look at some of the, the calories out equation because I think, again, this is where maybe in natural medicine we've uh, really drilled into and I'm not sure if that's where the, you know, the lion's share of the benefits of uh, obesity management comes into it. So when it comes to energy out, we've got our basal metabolic rate, we've got our non-exercise activity thermogenesis, we've got our thermic effect of food and also our activity thermogenesis. So uh, when it comes to some of those factors that may affect energy out, one of them is uh, hypothyroidism. How much of a role do you think that plays in um, obesity in general? Yeah, so there's no question that the thyroid is involved in metabolism. And if your thyroid is off, whether too high or too low, uh, that has a number of metabolic effects and, and can have a number of medical effects, whether causing anxiety, depression, uh, low energy, uh, and so forth. Um, there is a somewhat of a myth that all of obesity is caused by low thyroid levels or other uh, simplistic hormonal explanations uh, um, for, for weight gain uh, or for low uh, metabolism. Um, and, and it would be nice. I mean, I, I, mm. I very much wish that it were that simple. Unfortunately, the studies just don't bear it out. Um, the vast majority of people uh, who are gaining weight and who have obesity uh, don't have abnormal thyroid levels. And even when someone has low thyroid, more often than not, fixing the hypothyroidism uh, doesn't necessarily lead to that much 
weight change. I think it's certainly important to do if yeah. a, if a, if someone is a, has abnormal thyroid levels, of course, um, but probably more for other medical reasons uh, than expecting major changes in metabolism. Even though we can get a little bit of, of weight loss there, I'd, I'd make the argument that the more valuable effect of treating hypothyroidism with respect to obesity and weight management uh, is the indirect uh, uh, effects. So when you have very low thyroid, uh, you often have low energy and fatigue and often depression, uh, and it makes it hard to participate in your life fully. And so fixing that, I think, is very important for the whole person as well as for uh, them engaging in healthy behaviors. Uh, but unfortunately, uh, just giving thyroid uh, uh, thyroid hormone uh, has, has not been shown, and we've been studying it for over a, a century, mm. uh, it has not been shown to, uh, by itself, uh, uh, have much of an appreciable effect on, uh, on obesity. Okay. Now, let's turn our attention to the energy in. So obviously, we're eating calories. Um, I just want to take the approach about more our appetite and cravings and um, uh, going a bit deeper into the the composition of the food. And this is something you've investigated a lot. And uh, we know there's a lot of um, robust discussions and, and um, these diet wars, in a sense, going on between different camps. So... Um, the two main ones I want to look at is the the low fat versus low carbohydrate. There's the the carbohydrate insulin model of obesity, which um, suggests it's the insulin that um, affects appetite and fuel partitioning, and versus the low fat. So, can you give us a bit of a an update on where that, that where that where that's at and what the the research is showing between um, when comparing these two diet dietary approaches? Yeah, so um, the biggest um, area of disagreement, I think, here is is this carbohydrate uh, this carbohydrate insulin hypothesis. The hypothesis essentially is that <clears throat> is that uh, eating carbohydrates uh, increases insulin, and then insulin drives uh, uh, glucose into cells. Uh, and that causes a sort of cellular starvation uh, that then leads to an increase in hunger and a suppression of energy expenditure, a su- suppression of metabolism. And so the theory is that a low-carbohydrate, high-fat diet uh, should reverse this this uh, this milieu such that people are able to fairly effortless, effortlessly uh, uh, lose weight not have a lot of appetite, and uh, uh, most notably, uh, in theory, uh, should have an increase in energy expenditure. Their their metabolism should increase simply by virtue of decreasing their carbohydrate intake. And so, th- you know, various forms of this uh, hypothesis and uh, various. Um, iterations of this hypothesis have been going on for many, many years, decades, in fact. Uh, and, you know, the, the, the science doesn't, doesn't back it up uh, all that well. Um, on the one hand, were that true, you would think that low-carb diets consistently and significantly outdo the benefits of low-fat diets or other types uh, of the other macronutrient uh, mix of intakes, uh, and that and that's not true at all. There are numerous large randomized controlled trials showing that in the short, intermediate, and long term, over the course of uh, a couple of years in several studies, uh, that there is almost no difference in weight loss between very low carb, moderately low carb very low fat and, and, and moderately low fat, uh, dietary intakes. Um, there's been, uh, a couple of years ago, there was a study, uh, by a researcher at NIH, um, show, uh, that looked, uh, in a careful feeding study, uh, for this, um, this phantom increase in energy expenditure with low carb diets. And, and they didn't show 
any energy expenditure increase. In fact, there may have even been a, a very slight increased energy expenditure in the low-fat group. Uh, but regardless, there was nothing significant either way. Now, in fairness, there was just recently yeah. published a, a fairly large and very interesting study uh, by a group uh, at Harvard mm -hmm. uh, that looked over a longer period of time uh, at, um, at groups of people eating different mixes of macronutrients. Um, and while this is still a fairly preliminary study, it did show that there was a, a moderate increase in energy expenditure uh, in the group that had, uh, that had a lower uh, carbohydrate uh, intake. Um, and it's, it's potentially very exciting, and I, I sure hope that it's true, uh, if for no other reason, uh, might start to um, uh, unwind some of the confusion. Unfortunately, it doesn't yet do that. Uh, we need quite a lot more study, and, and as, as unfortunately as, as so many research studies and so many very good research studies often do, it ends up uh, leading to more questions than, than more answers. Um, but as we stand today, the science is, is very much up in the air uh, around this. Um, but uh, I think it, it's hard to make the argument that, uh, that this uh, uh, insulin carbohydrate hypothesis um, is, uh, is, uh, is true. Um, and 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 you know we need to we need to get some more some more data on this. We'll have to see how it plays out over the next few years. Great. That's I a, do think yeah. though on a, on a uh, just to add, yeah. I do think on a, on a clinical level, and this goes back to the large randomized controlled trials on low fat and low carb diets and such. Given that you know even even if we do take the 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 carbohydrate insulin model to be true, on a on a on a practical real world level we've never seen it play out in any positive way one way or the other uh now that may be because people can't stick to low carb diets over the long term at least not on uh, in bulk there are some people that certainly do quite a great job at that um it may be because the carbohydrate insulin model is not true it may be for other reasons um you know that that's beyond my pay grade um <clears throat> But, um, you know, given that we haven't seen uh, any real practical benefits of low carb or low fat diets for that matter, mm -hmm. I think ultimately the whole argument becomes more of a distraction than of help. I, I just don't think it makes sense for us to constantly be arguing about carbohydrates and fat. And I certainly don't think it makes sense for providers, for healthcare providers, to have their favorite macronutrient diet and tell every patient that they have to go on it, um, given that they can't back it up uh, with good uh, scientific evidence. On the other hand, there are certainly some people that do well with low carb diets and others that do well with low fat diets and some that just have a good skill set around what they cook and what they shop for and what they prepare that fits better with low carb eating or low fat eating or the like. And for any of those reasons, I think it makes a whole lot of practical clinical sense to support the patient in that, uh, that dietary pattern that feels right for them or that that feels comfortable for them that's uh well said and um i'll use that as a bit of a segue actually because my next question was that we do see large variations in responses to people going on either low fat or low carb some get amazing results some um, from that recent garden study you put on like 10 kilograms partially because i think when they investigate these people they that their um, lifestyle wasn't at the time conducive to to following the diet but Still on this sort of biological detective story, there is um, this quest at the moment of this personalization of diet, the, the whole N of one movement where um, a low-fat diet may be better for one person. And then um, if you look at whether it's genomics or microbiome composition or metabolomics, we can potentially prescribe a, a low-carb diet for the next person. So I just wanted to have a bit of a a look at where the, the science is currently with um, personalization. Uh, let's perhaps start with genetics because you mentioned early on that 
Um, obesity is uh, people with vulnerable genetics in this um, obesogenic environment. Certainly there's no question that genes play a role in obesity, but from a practical or clinical perspective, measuring things like single nucleotide polymorphisms and prescribing diets based on, on these um, gene studies, where's the, the science at with that? Yeah, so as you said, genetics is important. Um, there is no solid data uh, that I've seen at all suggesting that um, focusing on single um, single genetic um, uh, variances, single nucleotide polymorphisms um, is of any practical relevance in terms of approaching uh, obesity uh, clinically. I, I don't discount that we are going to learn a lot more about uh, the genetics of obesity in the future and, and even in the near future. And I also don't discount that we are going to have some, um, uh, there are going to be treatments that emanate from our better understanding of the genetics of it. Um, but anyone today selling some genetic cure for obesity or um, uh, you know, selling some predictive model based on the genetics that we understand today, um, I, I have a hard time uh, believing any of that based on the, the data uh, that we have published to date. Sure. Um, and any other emerging areas like the metabolomics or the microbiome composition, anything that you've looked at or come across that um, has any clinical evidence or maybe the near future? These, these are all emerging areas that are exciting and that I, I think will, will offer lots uh, to understand the science of obesity better uh, and ultimately uh, will offer a lot clinically uh, to help patients better in the future. Um, but, but we're still very much uh, in the adolescence of those, uh, those areas of research. And today, much of what you see on the internet, much of what you see marketed out there uh, with respect to the microbiome and probiotics, with respect to, uh, you know, uh, uh, genetic tests that have predictive power on what you should eat or how you should exercise uh, or the like. Um, unfortunately, we just don't have good science to back those those up. And so, um, you know, I think we should all continue to have wide eyes and excitement about what the future will bring. Um, and uh, I, I I hope that uh, we continue to bring great researchers into this area uh, to help uh, uh, to help quicken the pace of discovery. Um, but I would I would say for consumers uh, who are trying to understand what to do to improve their health, whether around weight management or otherwise, uh, you, you have to keep uh, caveat emptor in the back of your head because most, unfortunately, most of what's being marketed to us uh, doesn't have. Uh, scientific grounding sure well yeah, let's watch this space and hopefully there'll be uh, some fantastic developments so just to recap if it came down to um, prescribing or um, assisting our patients in choosing a diet to me that the overarching message uh, was that it's what the patient prefers and what they're they're most likely to stick to would you agree with that uh, essentially, yeah. What, you know, adherence is is key. Personal preference is key. There are there are some um, there are certainly some physiologic parameters that we want to assess for and address, and and certainly thyroid is one of them. Uh, but uh, the claims that are being made uh, for for many of these uh, uh, personalized treatments go well beyond uh, what we can prove. So uh, so working with health coaches, working with dietitians, physicians, community programs, and such uh, to find a reasonable way of uh, making lifestyle changes that feel good and that are healthful uh, and that feel sustainable. And when they're not sustainable, continuing to work with uh, the people on your team to adjust 
the plan um, and, uh, and, and make it work better for you. I, I think that there is nothing in the science, in the published literature or elsewhere uh, that, uh, that proves anything more central than that. Absolutely. And I'm going to use that now as a bit of a segue to what I sense you, you're passionate about. And, um, and again, when we looked at the, this literature, we were, were staggered that um, maybe there isn't as much emphasis on this in certainly our community. And that's the sort of the, the behavioral medicine aspect of managing patients um, with obesity. So as a bit of a, a, a prelude, some of the bigger successful trials were the Diabetes Prevention Program and the Look Ahead Trial. Can you um, just touch upon some of those studies and, and what they did and what the results were from those interventions? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, these were two um, of the foremost uh, clinical trials in behavioral medicine for obesity that have been published in in. Uh, this century um, uh, and foundational for the field uh, of obesity medicine. So both of them were large randomized controlled trials, uh, both uh, for patients who have obesity at baseline. In the diabetes prevention program, uh, in addition to obesity, patients had, uh, or the, the people in the study had um, uh, pre-diabetes at baseline, and in the look-ahead trial, uh, they had diabetes uh, at baseline. And they were randomized either to um, a fairly moderate uh, behavioral intervention with counseling and guidance and uh, behavioral uh, medicine strategies uh, such that uh, they had a goal of decreasing their caloric intake moderately, increasing their physical activity uh, moderately, uh, and losing a, a, a reasonable moderate amount of weight, roughly 7 to 10% uh, of their body weight uh, um, uh, as a goal. Uh, and then they were followed over the years, both to see uh, how they did with the weight management, uh, and in particular to see how uh, a range of uh, health outcomes played out compared with uh, groups that had standard counseling, minimal counseling, in effect, a, a placebo group. Uh, in the diabetes prevention program, the most notable outcome was developing diabetes. As, as you remember, I mentioned that everyone in that clinical trial had obesity and pre-diabetes at baseline. And in that trial, it showed that this uh, behavioral counseling group had a 60% uh, decreased progression to develop diabetes compared with a control group that didn't get the, the ongoing counseling. Uh, and that was over four years. Uh, they had lost 7% in the first six uh, months to a year of the trial, and they kept off a good portion of that over the next several years. And so that was very impressive in terms of uh, sustained weight loss, sustained moderate amount of weight loss, and the prevention of diabetes. In the other trial, the look ahead trial, this recall was patients with, um, with diabetes and obesity at baseline. And over the course of eight years in the trial, uh, the group that got the, the more intensive counseling lost uh, a lot more weight. At one year, they lost almost 10% of their body weight. E wow. Eight years later, they were keeping off a good portion of that, about 6% uh, in total. Um, the control group lost much more initially and, and uh, uh, kept off much, I'm sorry, lost much less initially and kept off much less over eight years. Um, the main goal in that trial was to see if that behavioral counseling led to a decrease in heart disease and, and heart attacks. On the whole, it did not, unfortunately. But when you look at the quarter of the, the people in the intervention group that had the best outcomes, which is to say they lost at least 10% of their body weight, there there was a decrease in the development of heart disease in this high-risk group. So what these two together show is that one, we have a, 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 a strong curriculum of 
um, behavior change strategies and behavioral medicine techniques that can be very helpful for people to help them get their feet under them and lose some weight and continue their progress to keep the weight off and continue to manage their weight over the long term. Uh, and we see lots of health benefits from that, from preventing diabetes, uh, in some cases to preventing heart attacks and improved cholesterol and, and blood pressure and so forth. So, you know, these certainly weren't, um, you know, it, it would be nice if you could do a lot of counseling and people lose all their mm -hmm. weight and never have to deal with obesity anymore and, you know, completely get rid of diabetes entirely. Um, and and that, that's beyond the scope of what we can do with behavioral medicine is particularly given that we are, you know, patients may spend an hour a week with a dietitian, for example, but then they spend the other 167 hours in this obesogenic environment that we talked about before with all the temptations and all the food everywhere and the limitations on physical activity and such. Uh, so there's only so much that behavioral medicine can do, uh, but for what it can do, uh, it's, it's quite impressive as, as these trials have shown. And I'll add one other thing before your follow-up. Hmm. Um, the diabetes prevention program, which uh, predated the look ahead by, by nearly a decade, uh, as that has been uh, uh, in the in the book, so to speak, for for nearly two decades, uh, that has been translated into small group programs that are done throughout the U.S. at YMCA's and and other community programs, and has since then now uh, received coverage from Medicare in the U.S. Now, that's no easy feat. Um, getting There's almost nothing for weight management traditionally that's been covered by Medicare. Uh, um, that's the government insurance uh, for older people. Uh, and so the fact that this counseling set of strategies is now covered uh, uh, really adds a lot of weight, no pun intended, mm -hmm. uh, to the benefits that can be accrued from, from this type of counseling. Wow. So what are some of the, the techniques specifically in this curriculum? So it's not just uh, the, I suppose, the stereotype of the patient laying on the, the sofa um, talking about anything and everything. There's a, a structured curriculum to it. Um, what, what are some of the components there? Yeah, abs absolutely. And and so some of these are, are very, um, very common things that, that you've spoken about, I'm sure, with many of your, your guests. Um, and some of the other things are, uh, unfortunately, things that don't happen enough uh, in clinical practice. So at the most basic level is regular interaction and support uh, with a trained uh, practitioner. Now, that can be individually or via a group. It can be with a doctor or a dietitian or a health coach or a behavioral psychologist or other trained uh, um, counselors. Um, but the importance here uh, seems to be the intensity of the interaction. And we define intensity in this case as the regularity and frequency uh, of that counseling. So just uh, seeing a, a, a practitioner once every couple of months on average isn't enough to lead to much benefit for most people. That may be enough here and there for some, but on average, you need a, a much more frequent uh, interaction, at least initially. And so typically, uh, we focus on weekly visits for a month or two, followed by bi-weekly visits for several months thereafter, followed by monthly visits for as long as possible thereafter to help with continued um, uh, benefits and continued maintenance of progress. Then we have dietary changes as part of that. Um, and as we spoke about before, um, the, at the basis of behavioral counseling is helping people to reduce their energy intake by a reasonable but usually moderate amount such that uh, it leads to an energy deficit that leads to weight loss. Too much of, a, of an energy reduction is often uh, unsustainable 
too little may not lead to much of a benefit. A good rule of thumb is often 12 to 1500 calories uh, for people under 250 calories. Uh, I'm sorry, for people under 250 pounds and 15 to 1800 calories for people over 250 pounds. But of course, we want to do this in a very patient centered way. And so, you know, you want to um, you want to adjust that uh, as appropriate for the given person in front of you. Uh, but those are useful rules of thumb. We want to increase physical activity. Activity. Uh, that can include formal exercise, uh, but that can also include lifestyle activity, uh, whether walking from here to there, whether going for a walk with your friend at lunch, uh, or you know trying to walk to the to the the metro instead of driving uh, to work. Uh, all sorts of ways that we can sneak activity into the day uh, that may then lead to not having to go to the gym if you don't enjoy going to the gym. Um, and then there's a, a, a structured curriculum of behavior change strategies within this uh, behavioral therapy for obesity. So in general, that involves identifying target behaviors that we want to aim for uh, that feel good for the patient and then helping patients to build the skills and ability to achieve those target behaviors and then supporting the patient as they go about working toward those target behaviors and managing the barriers and uh, pitfalls that get in their way and helping helping to problem solve as they run into challenges uh, um, uh, uh, as they work toward those target behaviors. So, One strategy that's okay. – I'll, I'll just add a couple yeah. others. Yeah, One strategy sure. that's often very helpful is self-monitoring. So that can be keeping track of your calories or your grams of carbohydrates or, or the like. Uh, it can be self-monitoring of physical activity, like keeping track of your steps. And it could even be just simply self-monitoring of weight, stepping on the scale once a week, for example, uh, which for many people has been shown to be very helpful and perhaps a bit of an easier way of self-monitoring than writing every calorie or every gram of carbohydrates down. And then, and then strategies like goal setting and problem solving, stimulus control, addressing barriers to change, and so on and so forth. These are all tried and true uh, behavioral strategies for behavior change, whether around uh, uh, obesity-related behaviors or other areas of health behavior change. Wow. So yeah, I think that really touches upon my analogy of becoming less the, the biological detective and more, as I say, in the coach. And what I meant by that is, like, in this case, it seems to me it's really you're helping the patient become more autonomous in weighing themselves and recording the calories and letting, and that patient-centered approach where they're, they're really solving the problems. You're just the, the mediator to help flesh out uh, why they might be, I don't know, reaching for the cake instead of going for the walk, et cetera. So, uh, yeah, I, I think it's really empowering for the patient and probably takes a, a little bit of pressure perhaps off the, the practitioner trying to give them all the solutions and also thirdly like in group settings as well I think um, you can certainly add to this about how with the, the the group be able to help solve each other's problems and they're obviously experiencing the same struggles and triumphs and tribulations um, with one another so they can really uh, feed off one another is that some of the sentiment you'd probably get from these group sessions and creating that sort of autonomy? Yeah, thinking of the provider as a coach uh, or a facilitator rather than, uh, you know, a dictator, uh, someone yeah. who's going to tell the patient what to do and then the patient has to obey, um, it, 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 it's a much more productive and very well studied uh, way of uh, supporting patients to achieve behavioral changes and, and positive health outcomes. Um, uh, there, there's many terms that you can use for this. One of the more common is motivational interviewing, where uh, in, the, in the process of the, the healthcare provider patient interaction, um, we are appealing to their motivations and helping them to sort of find their motivation uh, that helps them to move forward and to be there as a partner and a guide and a coach, uh, but, but letting the patient find their way and helping the patient uh, as, the, as they go about doing that. All right. Now, you've been really generous with your time, and um, I just want to cover one more area because i know you're passionate about and for me it was a 
um, quite surprising, but not when you really look at the data, but something I'd never really considered before, and I think it's worth touching upon briefly, is the the weight stigmatisation that comes with people with obesity. Um, so what does the science and the research show about this phenomenon and, and how can it you know, adversely impact our patients and how can we turn this around? Yeah, so weight stigma is an area that I'm I'm particularly interested in and passionate about. Um, you know, I, making fun of the the fat kid in the schoolyard has has happened for uh, who knows how long, maybe for centuries. Um, but it's become particularly problematic and common uh, today, in part because obesity is so much more prevalent, uh, and I think in part because societal beliefs around obesity uh, have become uh, uh, even more um, polarized and um, and uh, 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 angered, uh, um, you know. So uh, weight stigma is an issue where um, people become devalued and discriminated and rejected simply uh, because of of their weight. Um, And and that has a lot of implications. First of all, makes people feel terrible, as you would imagine. Um, But it also has effects on health, mental health and physical health, and also on weight. Uh, so when people experience weight stigma, um, they're more likely uh, to feel bad about themselves. They're more likely to have poor body image. They're more likely to have unhealthy health behaviors. So things like binge eating and emotional eating, they often have less motivation for exercise. And there are a number of health outcomes that have been linked to experiencing weight stigma, including diabetes and prediabetes. Uh, and in one study, even uh, a much higher risk of, believe it or not, premature mortality, dying mm. early wow. as a result. Um, so that's certainly relevant. But what's particularly noticeable is that there's a higher risk of more weight gain when you experiencing when you experience weight stigma um, we've seen this in some interventional trials uh, that uh, that randomize people to either get a weight stigmatizing message versus a neutral message and then looks at you know how much they eat in the next meal uh, mm-hmm. or looks at other health behavior focused uh, outcomes and then we've also looked at large population level studies uh, that follow people over the co- several thousand people over the course of years and people who report experience Experiencing weight stigma uh, have a much higher likelihood of gaining more weight uh, or not losing the excess weight that they may have started with. Uh, so this is this is a big issue. It's it's a social issue. Uh, it's a I, th- I think it's a human rights issue. Yeah. Um, but it's also it's also a health issue. It's a medical issue uh, and something that we want to keep working on. And it's also um, being experienced, witnessed in. Uh, healthcare, isn't it? Like healthcare providers are also at times, um, whether consciously or uh, was it implicitly, um, biased against people who are overweight. Is that true? Healthcare providers are frequently causes of of uh, weight stigma. Partly, it's because healthcare providers are real people, and yeah. and this is something that is you know is just so prevalent in, in our society. Partly, perhaps it's also I think because. Healthcare providers often genuinely care about the patients mm. that are in front of them yeah, and genuinely want their patients to be healthy and to feel good. And there is a common misconception that if we are more stern with a patient, if we're more sort of aggressive with uh, with them, then that will motivate them to lose weight and to be healthier. Uh, but unfortunately, the, the data doesn't back that up. And in fact, uh, a more supportive approach uh, is more likely to be productive and to minimize the risk for patients experiencing weight stigma. Great. So um, just to wrap up, any sort of key tips uh, for health practitioners to be mindful of, like the, the language they use or the way their clinics set up or anything like that, that can be some easy wins? Yeah, I think there are definitely some easy wins. The The first thing, particularly that healthcare providers can do, is to pay attention to 
to their own uh, beliefs about obesity and people who have obesity and to pay attention to their own potential biases and stigmatizing assumptions about uh, the heavier patients that they see. Um, and when you learn a lot more about obesity, the science, the physiology, um, it, I think it makes it a lot harder to be as harsh with patients uh, because you really start to appreciate just how challenging this is at a genetic and physiologic level as well as at an environmental level. Um, so I think that's the first step. Second, in addition to just tr uh, you know trying to um, treat all patients of all sizes and shapes and weights uh, with the same level of respect, uh, there are a couple of more tangible things that healthcare providers can do. One is to pay attention to the language that they use. So no one likes to be called obese, let alone morbidly so. Uh, and instead, more supportive patient-centered language uh, can be, one, not using the term obese. So you might use what's called patient-centered language instead. So a patient with obesity rather than an obese patient patient. This is the same thing we do in other areas of medicine. We don't call someone a depressive. We say they have depression. Mm. We don't call someone a diabetic. We say they have diabetes. Same thing uh, with respect to patients who have obesity. And then lastly, in your clinical setup, um, make sure that it is uh, conducive to people of all sizes. So if, if you have a, a waiting room that doesn't fit people, the chairs, the furniture, that doesn't fit people who are maybe over 300 pounds or so, well, that, that's a turnoff mm -hmm. uh, to those people. Uh, and, and that also suggests that, that perhaps implicitly, uh, or at least implicitly, people may interpret that as you know, the pr provider not really caring much about them because they're not willing to even do the most basic things in terms of uh, patient comfort. Similarly, making sure you have a scale that can weigh people of all sizes. If your scale only goes up to 250 pounds, at least in the U.S., you're, you're missing half the population that, that has weights, you know, roughly at or above 250 pounds. Australia is not quite as, uh, uh, as heavy a nation as we are, but, but you're, you're catching up. Yeah. Everywhere in the world is catching up. Uh, so that's another thing. Make sure to talk to your office staff about, um, about nurturing and kind ways of talking to everyone and talking respectfully uh, to everyone of any weight. So, you know, uh, I hear all the time patients saying that they went into a surgeon's office or they went into a primary care doctor's office and the the people behind the counter, uh, the, the, the front desk staff perhaps, was sort of snarking and laughing at the patient because of how they were dressed or how they looked or how heavy they were. And so uh, counseling the staff, I think, is another low-hanging fruit that can be helpful here. Oh, that's it. That's fantastic. Some really great tips there. Uh, the whole podcast has been full of absolute gold. I really appreciate uh, the insight you've given, the time you've given to us. I've covered a lot of areas and hopefully uh, listeners have uh, got the same view as us about the where we need to, I suppose, put our energy into patient obesity. And it's, yes, um, about the diet, but it's what they can, what they can sustain and how we can, you know, lead them or not lead them but help them on their journey through um, through this curriculum and really make those um, sustainable changes that over the long term can hopefully help with significant not only weight loss but improving the health and happiness so Scott thanks for your time I know it's late in, in the afternoon for you but a long long day so I really, really appreciate all the time you've given today my pleasure and thanks for the opportunity to spend some time talking to you thank you for listening to the Metagenics Clinical Podcast find us on iTunes and leave a review Join our practitioner-only Metagenics Facebook group to be informed of new podcast releases, keep up to date with key industry updates, and more. Visit metagenics.com.au to find useful links and resources relating to this podcast, and sign up for our e-newsletter.